This is Little Atom. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, a monkey's head, the Pope's neuroscientist, and the quest to transplant the soul with Brandy Scalacci and her new book, Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher. Brandy Scalacci is a historian of medicine and the critically acclaimed author of Death's Summer Coat, well, the history of death and dying teaches about life and living, which we talked about a very long time ago on Little Atoms, and Clockwork Futures, the science of steampunk and the reinvention of the modern world. She's the editor-in-chief of the journal Medical Humanities and previously worked as a professor of literature and in research and public engagement at the Dittrich Medical History Centre and Museum. And Brandy's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is Mr Humble and Dr Butcher, A Monkey's Head, The Pope's Neuroscientist, and the quest to transplant the soul. Brandy, welcome back to Little Atoms after all these years. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Tell us about where you first heard of the rather amazing story that this book is about. (laughs) You know, this has a great origin story because um, it's one of those times when I got pursued by the content rather than the reverse. (laughs) (laughs) I I had it when I did uh, Death Summer Coat, you remember there was a someone I contacted and I spoke to a lot about brain death in the book, um, a gentleman named Michael DeGeorgia, who's a trauma neurosurgeon in Cleveland. Well, he called me a couple of years later and he asked me to come down to his office because he had something he thought I'd find interesting. And generally speaking, if a neurosurgeon tells me he's got something interesting, I'm apt to go, right? So I head down and I sit in his office, which is on Case Western Reserve's campus at the University Hospital. And he pulls out essentially a, a shoebox and he hands it over and I open it. And inside is this battered old notebook. And he's not giving me any context at all. He's just sort of watching me unwrap this. And the notebook's probably from the 1950s and it's dog-eared. I'm flipping through it and it is very graph paper inside. There's a lot of cramped handwriting, a lot of pasted in notes and little rusty flecks, which I am told while I'm looking at it is blood, dried blood. So I I just don't know what it is. I said, what have you handed me? And he says the following sentence in roughly this order. (laughs) That is the school experiment notebook of Dr. Robert White, the first person to successfully transplant a primate's head in 1971. And there are so many words in that sentence that my brain was having trouble kind of getting around. I was like, wait, I'm sorry. When? Who? He did what? successful? What do you mean? So that was my first introduction, kind of a, a all in your face kind of moment. And I was I was hooked. I, I had to find out more. So were you aware of Dr. Robert White before? Because in the book, he's 
He's a real, he's famous. He's like, not only is he a big medical personality, but he's a media personality as well. Mm -hmm. I was not familiar with him. Now, partly this is because though I live in Cleveland, which is where he was at, I wasn't living there my whole life. And so um, he had, you know, passed away by the time I moved to town. So no, I didn't know him. But what became immediately apparent is I would just mention his name in a coffee shop. And people would come out of the woodwork to say, oh, I knew him. He, he saved my aunt. He rescued my nephew from brain cancer. You know, he was very well known. And then when I begin to sort of do just even a Google search, I realized, you know, he's in Time and he's in Look Magazine and, and People and all these other things. And I thought, wow, how is it that this bizarre story is so unknown? So this bizarre story that is the centre of this book, we'll, we'll get to later on, but the book also works in some ways as a biography of, of Robert White. So tell us something about, about his early life, basically how he ends up in medicine in the first mm-hmm, place. Sure. So he's, he's a really interesting character because it doesn't take you very long uh, at least it didn't me researching him to see that he had a, a really interesting way. His mind worked in an unusual way. And I'd almost suggest that he had a sort of eidetic memory um, where you can, Nikola Tesla was like this sort of envision things in three dimensions inside your own head. So he, he was very precocious and an excellent student. But he's coming up during the Second World War, and he's a teenager, he's getting ready to graduate, and his father goes missing in action in the Pacific, and he is believed to be a prisoner of war. All that they get back as a family is his diary, which was smuggled out of Fort Drum, and when they read it, it literally stops in the middle of a sentence. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking. I read, the, I read the diary myself, and it's quite heartbreaking, and so Dr. White uh, enlists because he wants to go and try and find his father. So he's, you know, he's just graduated high school. He enlists. He expects to be sent to the front. But uh, in perusing his, his grades and his achievements, he, when he was in high school, he, got to, um, he was dissecting frog brains. And the teacher was so impressed by his ability. He even said to him at the time, like, oh, you should really be a brain surgeon. So the recruiter decides he's too smart. Let's put him in medicine. There was all kinds of you know, reasons that they needed people to be medics and to be trained to do various things. So he's uh, not sent to the front lines, but rather trained rudimentarily in medicine to test water and lots of other things, and then ends up over in the Pacific himself. So in between the various other duties he's having while in the military, he keeps stopping to try and find information about his missing father. So that's a, you know, a really intense kind of moment in his life. And it's after they drop the bomb. He ends up in Japan doing some work and he's really moved by the temples there. He's walking around and he's thinking, you know, we're all just human beings. I just, you know, I don't know, maybe I should become, I want to do something to help people. And he says at that moment, he makes a choice between becoming a Catholic priest, he was raised Catholic, very committed Catholic, and becoming a surgeon. And at that point in his life, he decides to become a surgeon. Um, it's shortly after that, he finds out that his father had died, sees his grave, and then returns home to begin medical school. And he basically gets in right at the start of transplant surgery. He sees studies under one of the pioneers. And, mm-hmm. you know, transplant surgery nowadays, although it's, it's an incredible thing, but it's, it's pretty routine. Everybody is aware of it. And I think, you know, most people could probably tell you in a pub quiz that uh, Christian Barnard performed the first heart transplant. Mm-hmm. Um, but tell us something about the earlier days, the sort of 
pioneer days of transplant surgery. Absolutely. So White ends up at Harvard uh, and he's at the Peter Bent Brigham when Joseph Murray performs the first successful kidney transplant for which Murray wins a Nobel Prize. And what I think most of us don't realize is that up until the 1950s, Organ transplant was pure science fiction. I mean, you couldn't do it. The idea that your organs would work in another human body, it simply didn't happen because of what your body does. Um, Your own immune response will fight off those organs that are meant to save your life. And so it doesn't work. The first and there's a key transplant. reason why that first one worked. Right, right. And that, that's because uh, they, they basically had twins, um, the Herrick twins. One of them had become quite ill with kidney failure and the other twin was able to donate a kidney. And of course we have two kidneys, so you, you can do that and you can survive the surgery and give this organ to another person. And because they were identical twins, uh, it worked. It worked and, and the twins were able to walk out together to great fanfare. But of course, as soon as you do the first surgery that is successful, this lights a fire, right? And suddenly it's a contest. It's on. Everyone wants to be able to do this. They want to be able to transplant organs and not just the kidneys. So they were simultaneously working on immunosuppressant drugs. And the very early successes of those drugs went immediately into practice because people wanted to transplant organs. And you mentioned Christian Barnard. He does two heart transplants quite early on. The second one is he takes the heart of a black man and puts it into a white man. And there was a lot of controversy about that, partly because because, well, there was some disagreement about when you were brain dead enough to donate your organs. Plus, there was the factor that this is apartheid South Africa. And at least back here in the United States, after that surgery, um, given that it's the civil rights movement era, right? A lot of people, uh, Black people felt like, oh my gosh, they're going to harvest Black bodies to save white people. And, you know, what are we going to do about that? So it becomes critical for White, for Murray, and for all of the people involved in this. And White's sort of just in the center of this amazing milieu of people trying to come to grips with this. It becomes really, really central to know when you're really dead. And I mean, it sounds like an easy question to answer, but it turns out it's really not. And in fact, it's still there's still not a medical definition. That's right. There's legal definitions, and the legal definitions are relied upon by medicine. But what that means in principle, it, well, for instance, um, one country might have a certain set of laws that declares you legally alive or dead. And and by dead, I, by brain death, we're talking an isoelectric or flatline EEG, lack of responses, lack of reflexes, but your heart can still beat because that's part of the autonomic system. You don't actually have to be conscious for that. And before we had respirator technology, you know, when you were brain dead, you simply died because you need your brain to be working and conscious in order to breathe, but you don't need it in order to have your heart beat. So until we had artificial respiration, it was really easy, right? You know, if you're brain dead, you simply died for real shortly after that. But once you'd be able to keep someone alive by oxygenating them, by providing essentially artificial respiration, well, now all of a sudden you have a a question to ask. If the body's still living, but the brain signals aren't there, are you dead and and who decides? So some countries have some laws, some countries have other laws. I, I remember when I was doing Death Summer Code that you could actually be declared alive in one country and dead in another. So it is still quite fraud. And we and we know that there's still plenty of cases, um, legal cases and challenges that go on because of this. But for the purposes of, of organ transplant, if you want to take someone's heart, it's not like a kidney where you, you can keep going after you've given it, right? If you're taking a heart, you're going to die. But the heart itself still has to be beating when they take it. So you can see it's a very fuzzy line. And White becomes really interested 
not so much, uh, well, partly improving when brain death is, but also asking that question in reverse, what's brain life? So White has found himself in the, you know, the early days of transplant surgery in this milieu around all of these sort of ethical debates. Of course, the other thing that's going on at this time is after the Second World War and we're deep into the Cold War and Mm -hmm. the space race is going on and there's also a, a medical space race going on. And out of Russia comes a mysterious piece of film. Mm-hmm. Yes. I won't say any more. Tell us <laughs> about that. So in 1958, you know, you already have the, the organ transplants are ongoing. Things are happening. White is still matriculating and uh, he's, you know, he's in medical school. He's, he's going to complete and go on for residency and a PhD. A piece of footage comes from out of the Soviet Union and it depicts A man turns out to be a physiologist named Vladimir Demikov, and he's leading an animal into the scope of the the, the lens of the camera. And it is a surgically altered animal. He has created a two-headed dog. He has literally taken one dog and attached a second head to that dog. And that head is also awake and, and functioning, and both heads can drink milk and look at you and perk up their ears and pant. And it's this footage that really shakes things up. And in fact, it even, uh, it reaches Christian Barnard, who is sort of appalled, interested, and also feels like, well, if the Russians can do it, I can do it too. So you have this, it really pushes the envelope, partly because the West really didn't know what was happening behind the Iron Curtain. So we didn't know what they were capable of. And you have to consider that there was a point in time when the US government even started to investigate things like telekinesis because they were afraid maybe the Russians had this ability. So it sounds really sci-fi, but when you consider we've just dropped an atom bomb, no one was quite sure where the line between fantasy and fact might be. So there was a fear that somehow the, the Russians had figured out how to keep brains and heads alive in some fashion so that they, you know, so they were able to perform this surgery and send it. And to be perfectly honest, White was worried. White said, you know, have they figured out some form of immortality? Have they figured out how to, how to create um, a means of, of artificially keeping brains or heads alive, you know, is there going to be a, a constant Stalin, right? Is there is there some way that they're going to be able to preserve people into the future? So that pushes them because it's, it's similar to, you know, they launched Sputnik. So NASA has to get together and, and figure out how to get a satellite into space. The Russians put a dog in space. The Americans put a monkey in space. So you have this kind of one-upmanship. And when White reads about the two-headed dogs, he wants to start doing experiments on mice, then dogs, then primates to figure out, can you actually get ahead? <laughs> can you get ahead of the Russians? Sorry, I just, I keep running into puns with this whole book. Um, <laughs> can he beat them at their own game? You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Brandy Scalacci and we're talking about her new book, Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher, A Monkey's Head, The Pope's Neuroscientist and the Quest to Transplant the Soul. And you've keyed us up there to go on to <laughs> to go on to White's actual monkey head experiments, Brandy. But before we do that, can we just talk about his 
He has a genuine bona fide medical breakthrough that has revolutionised medicine and is is in use today, perfusion. Yeah, so it's very important, actually. So it's a form of, of therapeutic hypothermia. So perfusion works by supercooling, and it has a couple different uses. So starting off, White was using it for spinal cord injury, because um, when you have a spinal cord injury, some of the damage that causes paralysis is from the injury, and some of it's from what your tissues do after the injury, swelling, et cetera. So he begins by supercooling these areas in order to preserve functionality. And what he learns during this process is that you can also supercool the brain. So the brain is a really greedy organ, right? It needs lots of oxygen. You, you can't even go three minutes without oxygen. You, you'll suffer brain damage and all kinds of other bad things. So what he realizes is that if the brain's very, very cold, it actually can go a long period of time without oxygen. It's not quite suspended animation, but it's really, really close. So he feels that if you're able to cool down the brain, then you have a longer period of time to do your work that needs to be done there. And so as a result of his perfusion techniques, we are able to do much longer, more complicated brain surgeries. It's also used for heart attack victims. Uh, in fact, they even have um, started using it so that there's a, an ability even in the paramedic unit to supercool the brain, because if you have a heart attack, your heart's not getting blood to your brain, not getting oxygen to your brain, and you can suffer brain damage or death from that. So they're also using perfusion for heart patients. My own father had open heart surgery this year. They used perfusion on him. So it's really valuable. He was ultimately nominated for a Nobel Prize for it. And it's a technique that today, so many surgeries simply wouldn't be possible without it. So that was one of the things that he developed and was praised for, but he partly developed it on his quest to figure out, you know, the opposite side of brain death is if a flatline isoelectric signal is brain death, what happens if you have a signal and nothing else? So he begins doing what he calls brain isolation experiments, partly using the perfusion technique. Yeah. So setting all that great stuff aside, let's talk about what it does with monkey brains. <laughs> so, you know, I, I have to tell a little bit of an aside here, because when I first started researching this, I thought to myself, well, clearly the weirdest thing is going to be a monkey head transplant. But in fact, it did not turn out to be the strangest thing I encountered in this book. Fair warning. It was the isolation experiments. And they're, they're shocking for a couple of reasons. One is that they can be quite difficult to read about. Certainly, I, I found them difficult. And I was having to watch videos about this because it's animal experiments. And that's, it's hard to watch, especially to primates, which are nearest evolutionary relative. But the other reason that I find them so shocking is the philosophical question it raises. So he manages to, to get a brain outside of a living monkey while the brain's still alive. And I, I don't know if I can make that. I need you to see how weird that is. Um, it's not just taking a brain out after death. It's literally carving a body away from a living brain while that living brain is still alive and the monkey's still in there, so to speak. It is anesthetized, so it, it doesn't feel this happening, but this is literally a monkey's brain alive and by itself. So he manages to abstract it. He gets the brain out. He has it hooked up to electrodes and the brain by itself with no body is producing EEG signals, meaning a brain alone that is being suffused with blood and, and nutrients from, from actually a donor monkey is literally producing thoughts on graph paper. And to me, that was possibly the most mind-blowing thing 
that he did. And it was on the way, essentially, to head transplant. His main reason for going to head transplants is that he couldn't get anyone to believe him that these signals on graph paper meant that brain was alive. Because obviously people are like, there's no body. It can't be alive. So he decided his next step would be to follow in the footsteps of Vladimir Demikhov. He actually goes to Moscow himself to meet the man. And he decides to swap the heads and bodies of a monkey in order to prove that a head with its brain in it, that that's life, that the brain is you. And that's kind of where he goes with this. And that that very first experiment, it's both horrifying, enlightening, terrifying, and awe-inspiring in its own way. He proves that a monkey's head will wake up on a new body and still be that monkey. And that's just, that's Frankenstein, you know, that's just hard to, it's hard to come to grips with something like that, but he succeeds in doing it. And the very first thing he says afterwards is, have I now succeeded in transplanting the soul? And this is obviously a major preoccupation of him as well. As you mentioned, he's a he's a devout Catholic. He ends up, you know, friends with a couple of popes. We haven't even mentioned that he's got ten kids. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and so yeah, this idea that there's a whole debate in the book about the existence of the soul, but if the soul does exist, do monkeys have them? Do humans have them? It's also in there. But, you know, where would it be? And it does seem mm-hmm. like the brain would be the obvious place because that's the, you know, consciousness, soul, perhaps we can just, you know, blur those two lines or whatever. I don't know. So, like, again, I want you, you just described how, I mean, it is absolutely revolting what he's doing mm-hmm. to these monkeys and obviously not, obviously something, again, that, you know, we're talking about the 1950s, 1960s. Here. It's shocking to our sort of modern sensibilities. But let's talk about what the point is, I guess, you know, because he's doing this. He does think he's doing something to further medicine. Yes. Well, you know, I have to um, I have to say when I first started working on this, th- there's times when White seems like the hero of his story and times when he seems like the villain of his story. And when I first completed work, research work on the actual head transplant, I could not think of a single reason you would do this surgery. Like I could not, you know, I struggled. I'm trying to be um, unbiased in my presentation of history, but I really did. I thought, why would you ever do this? No one would ever want this done to a human being, but I was wrong. So what really becomes interesting is that White does this surgery on primates for the same reason most experiments are done on primates as a step forward towards doing the experiment or the surgery on human beings. And I know that sounds strange, but in fact, that was what White was aiming for. Because for White, as Catholic, and again, he had 10 children. One of my favorite stories is that on vacation, he gave them all numbered shirts so that when they got too far away, he could just yell like, number two, you're too far out. But he, he believed deeply in the human soul. And he felt that if you saved a brain, you were saving the soul. And he didn't see religion and science as separate. He actually saw them as a single thing and that he was doing a kind of God-directed mission. And we can have lots of reasons to question that. But for him, he felt like he was doing this to save people, to save brains. And in his mind, he saw the brain and the self as being the same. And again, I I think there's lots of reasons to maybe question that because we're also our bodies and our hormones and uh, all sorts of other things. But for White, that's what it was about. So he ends up working with a tetraplegic man, because by the way, if you cut your head off and you're severing the spinal cord, you're going to be paralyzed. The monkeys are paralyzed after these Yeah, I was going to raise this. This is yeah. the major problem with this experiment. <laughs> it's a big problem. These monkeys are basically paralyzed from the neck. Right. Yes, absolutely. And so again, I, I wondered why would you ever want to do this surgery? But what I hadn't considered was that there are people who are already tetraplegic 
there's um, Stephen Hawking was someone that White liked to refer to a lot saying, look, here's somebody who already can't move their body. As their body fails, you could technically give them an organ transplant, but all the organs at one time, you could give them a body transplant and then they could live longer and why not because their brain you just get still, a nicer you know, younger body is the point right right you get a different life you trade it system. in for a younger model right right so you know he called them uh head transplants when he did them on monkeys when he starts thinking about people he calls them body transplants but in all reality what you're really doing is just providing a life support system to a head to a brain so he begins working with a man named Craig Vitovitz, who is uh, tetraplegic. He, he was in a diving accident, so he can't move his arms or his legs, but he has a very full life. He's happy. He's married. He's got a business. He's got kids, but his organs are failing. And, and this does happen sometimes with people who are tetraplegic. So he wanted to get an organ transplant, just like the very first patient gets an organ transplant, the Herrick twins under Joseph Murray, but he's not considered a good candidate because of his paralysis. So the very thing that's causing this to happen is also sort of disqualifying him. And he becomes very incensed. And he says, you know, basically, he doesn't call it ableism, but he, he, he could have. He says, you know, this is medicine and is deciding that my life's not worth living. And my life is worth living and I want to live longer. So he actually reaches out to Dr. White, having known about White's monkey surgeries, because White tended to write a lot about that in the public and appear on television and things. And he says, look, I'll be your first patient. I don't want to die. And for the first time, as I, when I reached this information, I thought, well, that's a whole new way of looking at White's surgeries. I mean, yes, it, if you're just looking at the monkey head transplants, you think that's just a grisly, gruesome sci-fi. No one would want to do that. But then when you think that there's actual people who say, hey, this is my only chance. Don't I deserve to take it? It just causes you to take a step back and have to reevaluate how to look at something like this. And it doesn't mean that I suddenly was on board with everything, but it certainly is a different perspective. Well, we're going to come back to that perspective right at the end. But before we do, and again, just so anybody's listening doesn't think that I wholeheartedly approve of what it is methods, because it is it is absolutely horrifying a lot of the it things is, it is, that yeah. go on. So let's talk about his later ongoing fight with PETA, with animal mm, rights mm-hmm. activists. And basically, I guess, fundamentally, we can say he inadvertently ends up playing a small role in conditions in labs and for lab animals mm. getting better over the latter years. You know, I, I ended up uh, interviewing Ingrid Newkirk, who was the founder of PETA. And uh, actually, she's lovely. And I, I ended up interviewing her a number of times. And ultimately, she uh, she has a copy of this book in the PETA library. So one of the things that she explained to me is that, you know, White was of a group of people. And these were scientists who just didn't see animals as as beings as, in the same way that they saw humans. They saw them as expendable. And White certainly felt that animals were to be used in the service of humans. And, and a lot of medical practitioners, you know, feel that way. And I, a lot of times we like what comes from that, but we don't like finding out how we got there. Right. So even, you know, vaccines, for instance, you know, polio vaccine, a lot of these vaccines that we've developed over time, the animal experiments are a part of, we like the end. We don't like, we don't like the means. So White was very much in favor of experimentation. And he saw animal rights groups as just in the way, like he didn't really see them as valuable when in fact, they played a really important role because animals were not treated 
correctly. Someone asked me once, did White violate laws about how he treated his lab animals? And my answer was not the laws at the time, (laughs) but because the laws weren't very good. And because of the interaction, the fights that were very public between PETA and Dr. White, between PETA and the the monkeys of um, Silver Springs, there was a whole court case having to deal with that. This became part of the public consciousness. And suddenly there was a lot of pressure on lawmaking bodies to say, okay, we need better there needs to be better care for the animals who are in these experimental labs. And in fact, it makes for better science because if the animals are stressed out and sick because they're not being treated well, it's actually not good for the scientists either. Um, So we now have lots of things, enrichment and behavioral uh, various, they have to have plenty of big enclosures, et cetera. So it's really changed the way scientific research gets done. And we have this clash really to thank for that. Um, Now, PETA, you know, Ingrid still does not want anyone performing surgeries on animals as experiments. And medical science still does do that. It's not as though it's resolved, right? It's an ongoing battle back and forth. But White particularly, he was very vitriolic about this. And so he ends up publicly debating Ingrid Newkirk and using a lot of rhetoric to say, I'm performing this. You don't want me to cut up a mouse to save your child, you know? So he's, he's very good at kind of turning that language in a way that makes it difficult to argue with him. But at the same time, they were able to kind of um, turn things around on White too. One of the people, Oriana, uh, who who interviews him for Look Magazine says, if you perform this isolation on a monkey and you say, I've figured out how to translate the soul, aren't you saying that monkeys have souls? And White was like, uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> but he didn't really explain what, you know, why he thought that was different. So I think it's really valuable. Like, I don't think that in some ways, I don't think White was hurt by his clashes with PETA and with Ingrid Newkirk and these other folks, I think that science got better as a result of it. To finish it off then, so we talked about, you know, what the point, the sort of, I guess, limited application for a head transplant might be. Although, of course, if you were, you know, a tetraplegic, you might not think that it was it was a limited application. But it turns out now, latterly, that the spinal cord might not even necessarily be a problem going forward. Well, we're certainly, uh, there's still a lot of people working on trying to solve broken spinal cords, and they've done a lot of research, um, sometimes skipping over the spinal cord. So direct stimulation of muscles, which is functional electrical stimulation that's being done by BrainGate, which is a collaboration between a number of universities and a VA center here in Cleveland. And uh, there's also attempts using polyethylene glycol and even stem cells to see if there's some way of actually repairing spinal cords. And so some of this is definitely ongoing, but I would say, you know, for my money, (laughs) I think even if you were able to overcome the paralysis aspect, there's still a lot more questions than answers when it comes to head transplant, because, you know, you, are you just your head? Like, are you just your brain is a really good question because, I know each, you know, we have neurons in our, in the rest of our body too. We have neurons in our gut. We are composite beings. Um, We have symbiotic relationships with everything in our bodies, bacteria, right? Lots of other things going on that make us who we are, not to mention how we see our identities. So, you know, would you still be you if a head transplant was performed is I think a really good question. And it's one that we certainly don't have an answer for. So, you know, if anything, I think reading in this book should just put you in a position to ask a lot of hard questions about what we think of the self, not just who we are, but where we are in the composite that is brain and body and external and internal. 
So I've been talking to Brandy Scalati. We've been talking about her new book, Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher, which is out in the UK from Simon and Schuster. Brandy, thank you so much for, for sharing this amazing story with us. Oh, I'm so glad that I could be here. It's uh, it was a lot of fun for me to research. And so I hope you guys enjoy it. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.